Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Mark, if somebody was to put the question to you about the, the magnitude of what you think you've launched, how big do you think your product or your service is? Well, it's impossible to tell. Facebook was created in 2004. And how did Twitter get started? Twitter has a long story. Twitter um, launched in 2006. We got the iPhone in 2007. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. In historical time, that's a blink. And yet these technologies have revolutionized how we live and communicate. They've also upended the media business. I don't know what it was like to be a journalist in the before times, but I started in 2015. And since then, the dominant obsession has been clicks and traffic. Those weren't the only metrics that mattered. And the press has always competed for attention and advertisers. But in the digital age, success became synonymous with virality. And business was booming for a while. But eventually, the ground started to drop out beneath media companies, and everyone sort of lost control of the technologies they relied on. Today, from our perch in 2023, we have a clearer view of the fallout. The mad pursuit of traffic has been disastrous, not just for our industry, but for our political culture. And I keep wondering, and I know I'm not alone, if it had to be this way, could the story of digital media have been a hopeful one? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Ben Smith. He's the co-founder of Semaphore and the author of a new book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. His book is largely inspired by his time at BuzzFeed, where he was editor-in-chief. It's the closest thing we have to the origin story of digital media and its transformative impact on politics and the whole news business. Ben was at the center of all these changes, so he brings a firsthand account of what the people involved thought they were doing and what they actually ended up doing to all of us. We began at the beginning of this turning point, before the venture funding, as things were just getting off the ground. 
this all started kind of as a scene, like many things do. A bunch of people, not that many, who live near each other in downtown Manhattan, actually where I'm sitting right now, knew each other, dated some of the same people, people who knew each other in a small world. And, you know, there was a handful of really important players in that world, but the two I chose were Nick Denton and Jonah Peretti, and it's because among these people who were playing around on the early internet, there were two people who saw oh, this isn't just some little alternate space. This isn't some fun toy. This is a technology that's going to totally swallow everything else. The, you know, this is going to swallow journalism and entertainment, basically. And they also had very, very different ideas about what that future would be. They had clear visions of the future, but very different ones. And for Denton, it was the notion that the clarity with which the internet could give you kind of clarity about yourself and your audience that had been sort of lost in the wooden hypocrisies of the old media. And remember, this is a time when, A, places like the New York Times had just horribly botched coverage of the most important story of their generation, the Iraq War. And when they were totally out of touch with the way normal people communicated on the internet all day. They were putting copies of a newspaper online 12 hours late. And so the idea that the internet would sort of give you something real that cut through the hypocrisy felt intuitively right to people. And to Denton, part of it was that you could see what people were actually interested in, not what they pretended to be interested in. If that was pornography, he started a porn site to give it to them. If it was sort of malicious gossip, well, then that's what they want. If the women's magazines were egregiously photoshopping, everybody appeared to be unrealistic. Jezebel, one of his blogs, put out a $10,000 bounty on an unretouched photo. I mean, that was sort of their vibe. And there were elements of it that were incredibly appealing and revealing. And for, particularly at first, when the writers were these young women who were total outsiders, throwing spitballs at these powerful institutions, it was pretty fun. I love that Den quote. I, I won't recall it word for word, but it was something to the effect of what legacy media did was feed people what they wish they wanted. And it worked because options were limited. But digital media gives people what they actually want. And as you say, what they what they actually want is porn. What they actually want is flattering, affirmative shit. They want Twix bars. They don't want kale. <laughs> and like, boy, I think we may have underestimated the consequences of that. Right. And, you know, and it's not that media for generations had not sought to pander to people to to drive subscriptions or circulation or ratings, first of all, and that had not been deplored for generations. But suddenly you were flying with instruments. You could see it all in exquisite detail. And then Jonah Peretti, who was the other character, had this totally different sense of what this future would be like. You know, his sort of formative experience had been this funny thing that happened to him when he was in grad school, where he's sort of a prankster in the, you may remember this jargon, but in the jargon of the 90s, he was a culture jammer. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a left-wing, you know anti-corporate prankster, basically, by nature. And Nike was doing a promotion where you could customize a Nike shoe. You could go on the internet, crazy, and write a word down, and they would print a shoe with that word and send it to you, which was pretty innovative in that moment. And so Jonah put the word sweatshop on the shoe, because that was the big debate. Nike's labor practices were very controversial in that moment. And a customer service agent wrote to him saying that was against their terms of service, and he wrote back saying he'd read the terms of service, and actually it wasn't. And they had this very, very long exchange about it, which ended with Jonas saying that he understood they would not put the word sweatshop on the shoe, but could they instead send him a photograph of the seven-year-old girl who had assembled the shoe? It's clever. Pretty clever. And when you're like a clever young man of a certain milieu in that world, what you do is you try to get your clever thing included in Harper's Index. 
the front of the book of a print magazine that assembled clever things by people like Jonah. So he sent it into Harper's Index, this exchange, and they rejected it. And so he just didn't know what else to do with it and forwarded an email to a few friends, at which point it, what we would now say went viral. You know, those friends forwarded to other friends. Email forwards were sort of the first viral media. And pretty soon, half the people in America have seen it. Jonah's on the Today Show debating a spokeswoman for Nike about sweatshops, about which he knows absolutely nothing. And his takeaway in the end was just that sense of, wait, what just happened to me? What was that? And turned his academic research to that and eventually his profession to sort of chasing that sense of, oh, there's this new kind of media that will be distributed by its users, distributed hand-to-hand. So they both create these sort of monsters. I mean, Denton creates Gawker, Peretti, co-founds HuffPo, and of course, BuzzFeed. But they also had dueling philosophies on traffic, right? I mean, Denton seemed to think that traffic reflected something like editorial quality, and Peretti seemed to think about it more, how should I put this, in behavioral science terms. Yeah, well, I'd say yeah, Denton thought of it as what people wanted was the kind of hard truths, and that if the hard truth was something that was that you as a journalist thought was beneath you, well, you were wrong. And Jonah thought about it as distribution, and he thought about it in psychological terms. I mean, I, when I got to BuzzFeed in 2012, our slogan was no haters. And that was partly because Jonah had seen social media coming almost before anybody else and built a media company that was to sort of in position to ride this wave of social media. And his theory was fundamentally, and it was truer than it sounds now in a way, but that people would share things that reflected well on them that to share something, say something about your own identity. And so you would share a fundraiser for victims of an earthquake to show that you're generous. You would share a joke to show that you're witty. You'd share a thoughtful article in Vox to show that you're intelligent. You would certainly not share like hysterical, insane meme because then everybody would think you were a lunatic, right? And it was like a fundamentally positive space. And that in fact, what was shared on social media would be like people's best selves would appear on social media, where in the privacy of the Google search box or of Gawker, they'd been playing to people's worst selves. And so there was a hugely viral early BuzzFeed post titled Photographs That Will Redeem Your Faith in Humanity. And it was all like people rescuing goats from drowning. (laughs) How did he, Jonah, understand the physics of virality, right? Like what, what made up the ultimate viral cocktail for him in his early days? It's not physics, it's psychology. And I think that's what he understood, that it wasn't then and now. There are lots of people who will tell you they've undercovered like some technical trick that makes things go viral. But really, ultimately, you are talking about human behavior and humans sharing things and humans choosing to do things. And so he was just always focused on why would someone share this? What's, what's your motivation for sharing this thing? Do you think they underestimated sort of the outrage part of that? I mean, again, like everyone, the cute kittens and the listicles and all that stuff, but were they not thinking about how compulsive outrage would be as well? No, we were not thinking about how compulsive outrage would be. And we're also not thinking about um, the ways in which the motives of the platforms on which these things were shared would themselves shift and feed certain and privilege certain kinds of things that whose ultimate goal was just to keep you looking at that platform a little longer. You know, I wonder why you ultimately take the gig at BuzzFeed. You know, you had your first meeting with Jonah. He offered you the job. You didn't want it, I guess, initially. But then you thought about it a little bit more. And then you decided, uh, okay, maybe I do. 
but I've been a political writing about politics on the internet since 2004. Blogger is the forgotten term for that sort of person. And it was at Politico covering the Obama-Clinton campaign in 07, 08, and then covering national politics, writing a blog every day. And when I sat down with Jonah, he had all this abstract jargon about distribution and the social web and the future of digital media that I didn't, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. But I had had this experience where in 2007, 2008, there were tens of thousands of people I knew I could see the traffic hitting refresh every day on my blog because they were obsessed with the Obama campaign and wanted to know what would happen next. And I mean, I knew a lot of those people on email. I mean, you know, I knew my audience extremely well, like by name. And, and I could see that they were moving to Twitter. And that for me, what had been satisfying to post something on my blog and watch people consume it and talk about it there, for me, had become to watch people share it on Twitter and watch it go nuts on Twitter. And all my sources, all the subjects of coverage, the politicians, the campaign operatives, the smart readers had all moved over there. And so I didn't didn't have this abstract sense that Jonah did of this sectoral change. I could see that my audience was no longer somebody who went to politico.com or politico.com slash blog slash Ben Smith, but instead somebody who went to twitter.com. And the challenge was, how do I get stuff in there? So it was the idea that you were going to marry the attention hoarding traffic machinery of BuzzFeed to a serious news operation and sort of have the cake and eat it too? Yeah. that I mean, and and I would say that BuzzFeed was charmingly, naively sort of uncynical. Like, I don't think we saw it as a traffic hoarding machine. It was well, like, what do people like to share on Facebook? This new thing, the Facebook newsfeed is so delightful where you get pictures of your friend's kids and cute dog pictures and occasional news. Like, what a fun mix. You know, we want to be the provider to that. We want to give you all these things. And then in a way, Twitter was the parallel for news. Twitter had swallowed the news business and it was sort of felt intuitive to start a digital, not a website, but a news operation that was focused on Twitter. I mean, there is sort of a question looming over your book, and, and I think you pose it directly. And the question is something like whether or not viral political content can also be valuable political content and vice versa. And you seem to be ambivalent about that now. Is that right? Yeah, I just don't. I mean, I sort of, I think, to probably a frustrating extent, I think resist the notion of making these very clear value judgments on one social period or another. I think there's a bunch of books out there whose covers have a dollar sign and an eyeball and explain to you that, like, the internet is responsible for every bad thing. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's a complicated. Yeah. I think it's complicated, basically. I think political content through history, successful politicians have created memes that spread among people. And I think whether you think that change you can believe in was powerful and positive or harmful and negative really depends a lot on what you think ought to happen in the world and less about the internet. But I think it's one of the most interesting things to me about getting your head back to the aughts is that it was just presumed and obvious that the internet was a progressive political space. Then the internet was for young progressive people, Huffington Post created to get a Democrat elected. Facebook, you know, in particular, was the core of the Obama movement. One of its co-founders went to work for Obama. And in 2011, actually, that late, Obama visited Facebook's headquarters and didn't need to say, like, I'm visiting Facebook because it's a democratic institution. Just it's like visiting Madison, Wisconsin. It's where the college kids are. Of course you go there. Yeah. Well, and then grandpa and your crazy uncle got on Facebook and shit uh, hit the fan. That is more or less the story. I mean, just literally everybody. You know, the frustrating thing for me, or one of the frustrating things, and and we we had a conversation, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago 
on this show with Matthew Jones, who's a co-author of a book called How Data Happened. Because there's a lot of fatalism, and this is a point you, you've made in several conversations, that it's, it's very easy to look backwards now and, and talk about how you know, this was doomed or this was inevitable. That's, that's an easy game to play. But it really didn't actually have to be this way. I mean, Jones talks about the rise of Google and how initially there was really no thought or no mention of monetizing the algorithm's infrastructure through ads. They could have gone another way, subscriptions or affiliation fees or sponsored links or whatever, but ads ultimately won out. And so from that point forward, the big question for tech companies was, well, how do we get people to click on ads? That was the whole game. And that really sort of set the the table for, well, this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things, as I've talked about this book that people ask is, what was anyone thinking putting hundreds of millions of dollars into companies like BuzzFeed, like Vox, actually, like Vice? Like, just what were, what were they thinking? Like, Vox is the only one slightly standing. Well, just seems like, were you just morons? Like, what was that? And And the answer, which maybe was delusional, was that, People remembered what had happened with cable. A bunch of entrepreneurs had created a new way of distributing content, and they had realized, like, oh, no one's going to plug in their boxes to our cables and pay us 20 bucks a month unless there's really good content coming down those pipes. So we're going to take the revenue we're making from the people paying for the boxes, and we're going to spend a lot of it, like most of it, on places like ESPN, Fox, CNN, MTV, most of all. And... We're going to make less money, but that's the core of the business is that we have to create a ecosystem where we're sharing money and everybody gets rich. And I think a lot of people, many of whom had been there literally, like the Tom Freston, the chairman of Vice, had been the founder of MTV, many of whom had been deeply influenced by that moment and had their careers made by it. Ken Lear, the chairman of BuzzFeed, similarly, had been at the birth of MTV, said, you know, that believed that as social media matured, there would be a, essentially a, a heated competition among Facebook, Twitter, Snap, YouTube, every for the highest quality content, and they'd have to start to pay for it and get away from this user-generated content garbage and move up the value chain until they were in business with a new generation of content providers, essentially. You know, and I think, honestly, you look around now at how the blue Facebook app is doing and how Twitter is doing. I don't think you would necessarily say that those guys made great decisions in choosing to stay entirely user-generated. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's all easy to say now. When did it become clear that social media was breaking our politics? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. 
you can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. I mean, we can fast forward a little bit in time here. I mean, was it 2015, 2016 when you finally looked around and thought, oh, shit, this is maybe we all messed up here. You know, there was a year, maybe it was 2017, when we when BuzzFeed News, and this is in the on the sort of business side of the equation, because I think there were two things happening in parallel and not exactly in parallel. One was that that core thesis that this was going to be a good business started to look pretty shaky. But, you know, come 2017, we have seven figures of revenue directly from Twitter, from deals with Twitter, deals with Facebook, bunch of money coming in from Snap. And I actually had a moment of thinking, oh, wow, this is going to work. Like, this is what the, the thing we predicted is going to happen. But by then, the reason that if you step back that it was not going to work was social and cultural and political, that social media had become a toxic wasteland. Not only were the companies frantically backpedaling from news, because news and politics were the source of this, but users were starting to feel pretty bad about the time they spent on these platforms. And, and so now we talk about whether the cable business is going to survive, but it's been, you know, like 45 years. And I think five or six years into the social media boom, you started to think, huh, maybe this may not last. Yeah, I mean, the, the business side, I don't really understand that. But on the, the cultural, social, political side, I mean, I, I don't know if I've said this publicly, but working in media like during Trump's campaign and during Trump's presidency was just absolutely one of the most dispiriting experiences of my life. And the thought of doing that again just makes me recoil. The experience of being in this industry and watching all the pathologies of it get so thoroughly hacked was just maddening. And I feel like we're going to run it back or we might end up running it back. And it just makes me want to jump out of my window. Don't do that. Although don't you like live on the first floor? <laughs> Second floor. So I'm, I may actually just roll an ankle. But, uh, right. but yeah. stay, stay safe, Sean. You got it. But I mean, I, you know what I'm saying though? I, it's just... I, I don't know. I think, I mean, in some sense, politics and political campaigns rarely bring out the best in people and in the media. And the media never lives up to people's dreams of what it's going to be. The, I'm resistant to the idea that the Trump story, the story of the rise of the global far right is 
mostly a media story. Well, the word mostly is doing a lot of work there. Yes. It's part of it. I don't know how much of it anyone who says they does uh, are full of shit, but I do think you're right about this. This is a problem that's not just of the digital era. It goes really back to the commercialization of the news business, especially in the age of mass media and television. You may disagree with this because you're like a serious reporter and I am not, but <laughs> lots of journalists have this romantic fantasy in their heads about what we're doing here. We have this noble role, a central role in democratic life, and that's not altogether wrong. But the reality is we we are pushing a product and that product has to sell. And that means it has to conform to the laws of entertainment that drive these mediums. And I'm not sure any character, like fictional or otherwise, could better represent the apotheosis of all the trends in media over the last half century or so than Trump. I mean, he's just like Frankenstein monster that was just like perfectly engineered. He's so pure. Yes. I mean, he he is of this moment uh, in so many ways. It's like a distillation of it. Yeah. And I think and that's both true, as you're saying, in this kind of abstract gestalt way that is so obvious. Yeah. But it was also very technically true to these platforms. Yeah. And again, I don't think Trump was mostly caused by Facebook. But there is this truth that one of like the core strategies of the, not just Trump, this new populist right, and I feel like maybe I heard this on your podcast, somebody say this, but it's definitely true, which is, is to say transgressive stuff, is to transgress, is to prove that you are not one of these cozy establishment people that you'll say, you'll lie, you'll say sexist things, you'll just say crude stuff to show that you're an outsider. And they all do it. It's not unique to Trump at all. But it flowed into a moment when Facebook was privileging engagement and tuning its little needles to figure out how to keep you most engaged for the most time. And what the thing they most finely tuned it to, sort of before they gave up and ran away, was comments. And just a brief sidebar here, people talk about the algorithm. If there's nothing else you take away from the book, it's such nonsense. I mean, like in the book, you'll see at one point at BuzzFeed, they kind of tip, somebody tipped us off that the system had shifted, so four comments equaled one like. Like, that's the algorithm. Four comments equal one like. They weighted comments more. They thought that meant it would be things you meaningfully engaged with and talked about. But what it fundamentally meant was like, I post a racist meme. You then write, you're a racist. I then write, no, you're a racist. And the system is like, look at this meaningful engagement. Let me show it to everyone else on the planet. Yeah, it's the Athenian Assembly. Check it out. This is actually a good bridge to, I think, one of the more interesting and, and probably consequential storylines in the book. And that is this evolution of digital media from an instrument of the left to a weapon of the right, really. Do you have a simple way of making sense of that shift? Yeah, I mean, that to me, in some ways, was the clearest thing I took away from the book and the biggest surprise in reporting it. Because as I said before, it was this presumptively progressive space. And then when you go back and look around at who was hanging around this progressive That's space, the interesting stuff. I didn't know a lot of the details. The founder of 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's office. Andrew Breitbart co-founded Huffington Post with Jonah Peretti. The founder of the Proud Boys was a co-founder of Vice. Steve Bannon learned a lot looking over Jonah's shoulder, he says, at Huffington Post. And in a way, the tools and the ideas and the ways of thinking about the internet that we perfected in the aughts, you know, they took to their logical conclusion. Because one thing about Barack Obama and the politics of Barack Obama, he was not a populist. His opposition to the war aligned him with the populist left and with the internet left and the net roots on the most consequential issue of the decade. 
But ultimately, when it came to things like student loan forgiveness, he was going to call up Tim Geithner and see what Tim Geithner thought. He was going to get off that train at some point. And Donald Trump on the right, and like they were never going to get off that train. What they saw was that at Breitbart.com, was there were two things that got the most traffic. Crimes committed by Black people against white people. So they had a Black crime vertical. And undocumented immigrants committing crimes. And so they just followed the heat. They produced more content like that. They made people angrier and fed on that anger. And between that and this kind of transgressive style of speech, like they were perfectly suited for this new online ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a my view of this for a while now. I think something that has happened in the last decade or so-ish, the left has gained a kind of cultural supremacy. And as a result of that, the web became a more transgressive space and that empowered the right because being transgressive is just... It's about attacking whatever the dominant culture is. And this is something I have found difficult to talk about the last several years when, you know, you're talking about the alt-right or whatever the hell. Like, I really do think the road to extremism for so many people began from a very non-ideological place. You know, people just trolling for LOLs and being subversive. And then, you know, yada, 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 they're suddenly waging a heroic battle for Western civilization, you know, and it didn't have to go that way, but it happened so easily. Yeah, and no, I think that's exactly right. And and I mean, there's one character in the book who embodies this to some degree, this guy who went by the name Baked Alaska. He was a kind of lost soul kid from, from Anchorage, I think, who, um, who was a white rapper that Baked Alaska was his moniker. And he uh, got a little famous on Vine for like doing things like he would like go to a convenience store and film himself pouring a gallon of milk over his head. That was the kind of thing that made you famous on Vine. And uh, like among the many kind of slight cultural misfits in LA, kind of brilliant misfits who went to work for BuzzFeed, I'm not sure he was brilliant, but started working at BuzzFeed in LA. And for a while was sort of seen as like, like a Bernie Sanders supporter and a lefty, but really it was just someone who wanted to fit in and wanted to particularly on social media, like kind of optimize his own identity for what would ever draw engagement. And he found that engaging with Milo Yiannopoulos, a Nazi basically, was a great way to get more likes for himself. And he just gradually became a true extremist who I lost track of for a while and then saw him in the Capitol on January 6th, you know, live streaming. He didn't set out to go that way. It just the, the, he was sort of... A, empty person in some level, and the internet took him that way. There is a scene in the book that does sort of sum up why the right did end up winning online, for lack of a better word. And you were recalling a conversation with Steve Bannon, who you just mentioned, at Trump Tower back in 2016. And he's asking you, why in the hell did you guys, you know, liberal media, not go all in on Bernie Sanders, right? Bernie was driving more traffic, more engagement, more energy, like Trump was for them. But you didn't attach yourself to him like they attached themselves to Trump. And he's sort of befuddled by that. What was your response to Bannon? <laughs> and why was it not entirely satisfying? Yeah. I mean, the response I remember in the moment was not was sort of unsatisfying because it was a earnest question. Yeah. Why did you guys at BuzzFeed not just follow the traffic to Bernie? It's where the traffic was. And we'd seen that in the traffic. And actually, my most traffic-minded colleagues were like, we had to do more like great pro-Bernie Sanders stuff. But I, I mean, at some level... There's this countervailing set of journalistic values that say we ought to be fair. Right. And that was sort of the best I could do like in trying to explain this to Bannon. And it did feel asymmetric, I would say. But it's sort of the difference, right? I think it reflects the comparative advantage that they had. You know, part of Bannon's and Breitbart's power is like not just that they 
I think, recognize that the old 20th century model of media is over. They're also willing to completely abandon the norms and the ethics of that era in a way, you know, other media. And the institutions. Yes, right. And that's, if you're willing to throw that off, (laughs) it's a bottomless pit, man. Yeah, I think that's right. And I just, um, I think you actually say this in the book, but they just, and this is a reflection not just of media. I think this is just a problem or a difference, I should say, between the left and the right. Like they intuitively not just grasp, but accept and even embrace that politics isn't really about policy and it's not really about arguments. You know, it, it is vibes and aesthetics and culture and nostalgia. And they push that. Well, immigration was policy too. Yeah, I don't think it was just the right. It, I do think it was very specifically that the Republican Party had made this bargain or this trick where for decades they, they had sort of diverted the real seething anger among their voters over immigration into other channels. And that's a policy issue. And it was totally real. And Trump and Bannon just mined it. And there were a lot of Republicans and conservatives who had tried to avoid for many decades and still do tapping into that particular source of power. But for this new right, I think that's right. Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm not saying policy isn't part of politics. I'm saying they weren't selling a policy. They weren't even selling an argument about policy. They were selling a story. They were selling fear. They were selling a kind of traditional masculinity, for sure, maybe as much as anything else. They were selling a wall on the border, too. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you think we get Trump without Obama? I mean, I do think about that a lot. I mean, if you think about the Obama-Romney election of 2012, imagine living in a country where the candidates for president are Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Like, that's a totally different country than the country we live in right now. And so what if Romney had won, right? So I think if you look around the world, there was this global surge in this very specific flavor of right-wing populism everywhere. And the notion that it's sort of an American story that's about specific things that's happened here is just clearly not true. But it, this technology we're talking about is global. Social media is global. Yes, that's right. And again, I, it's hard to play this causal game. I don't know on the pie chart of what caused all this. But they ran together. Yeah. They, they flowed, these rivers kind of flowed together, clearly. But I mean, do you think we get Trump without Twitter? Um, do you get Trump without television? Now, that's really the question. But I think Trump was a, I mean, he was the all-media candidate, but he is a television. He's, an, he's a figure of American television, and the only reason people like us don't intuitively get that is we don't watch enough TV, and we spend too much time staring at Twitter. But I mean, he's a guy who had tried to build something called Television City on the west side of Manhattan in the 80s. Wait, what? Yeah, there was a big development he tried to pull off. But yes, he was, a. I mean, and, and the way he hacked, particularly cable news, broadcast news, The Apprentice, which shaped his image more than anything else, is I think he's this television figure who used Twitter to program television, but who played well on Facebook. But And, and you know, and all these things, again, ran together. I, I actually don't think it's too much to say that without The Apprentice, there's no President Trump. I agree with that is certainly true. And that, yeah, I feel more confident in that than anything. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, me too. I was talking to a, a woman I know, an older immigrant. I don't know how she votes, but occasionally asked me about politics, lives in my neighborhood, teacher, who said to me, you know, I just miss him. And I was like, what? She's like, I just haven't watched TV really since he stopped being president. He was just so entertaining. I was like, you voted for Donald Trump? She did. He was great television. 
Does Ben see a way to undo all the damage social media has caused? That's coming up after one more quick break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I know this is a question you've heard a lot, and I try to avoid doing that as much as possible, but I think I have to ask because it's kind of a recurring theme on the show. The way the question is normally put is something like, you know, did digital, did social media change us, or did it just reveal what was always there? I mean, I guess the simple, obvious answer is both. But I, I do, I continue to think that it changed and is changing us far more than we understand yet. But what's your sense? Yes, I think I agree with you. I mean, it certainly changed how I work and process the world. And Twitter, for me, being the social media. So, so speaking from personal experience. But it is hard, and it will take a kind of, I think, social science research that is hard to do in the moment, to untangle the, like, which parts of it are kids these days. Like, something that is not true. I don't think, is that people's attention spans are getting shorter. At every moment in my entire life, people in their 40s and 50s are saying that people in their 20s and 30s attention spans are getting shorter because of movies, television, the internet, TikTok, YouTube, podcast, whatever. And I don't think that's just not true. There's really nothing to back it up. And so I think untangling which the real effects are and which are just the kids these days thing is hard when you're living inside it. See, I don't know, man. I think I might disagree there. I don't know about the attention span thing, but I think, I'll just speak from personal experience, and I know I'm not alone. My capacity for stillness has been absolutely gutted. I mean, I can't, not to be gross or anything, but like, I can't remember the last time I just went to the bathroom or went to go brush my teeth without grabbing my fucking phone. Hmm. 
<laughs> it's like, it's just a, this compulsive thing, right? Like that, it wasn't like that yeah. 15 years ago. And it is absolutely like that now. And I can't tell you the last time I walked into a public bathroom and didn't see like every dude standing in the in front of a urinal with his phone in, in his hand, right? I mean, that's a huge change. That's a big change, but so what? You think that's good? No, I just don't know. I mean, like, for instance, when we were kids and our parents drove us places, like a 45-minute drive was torture, screaming matches, are we there yet, meltdown, and now it's my kids watching TikTok. Like, God bless, that's obviously positive. I agree with you on the observational thing, but I don't totally feel confident about the so what, like that lost moment at the urinal in which you used to have these profoundly contemplative, <laughs> you know, like, I think there's a... I don't really know what the so what is there that your phone has outcompeted staring at the weird beer ad in front of you at the urinal or reading the cereal box at breakfast. I don't know, man. I, I co-wrote a book last year and to write that book, I had to read a lot of Marshall McLuhan. I'm not sure I understood half of it, but he did change the way I think about technology and, and media. And, you know, one thing he was absolutely right about, in my opinion, was that because I think he, he coined the phrase, the global village. And this was like back in the 70s, right? He was sort of anticipating the internet. And the global village sounds like a really quaint, lovely thing, right? We're all going to be one big virtual community. But his point was precisely the opposite, that this would be terrible for us, right? That like having our nervous system extend to the whole world, being plugged into the whole world, knowing about all the terrible shit happening in the world all the time and being completely impotent in the face of all that terrible shit would not be good for our psychologies. It wouldn't be good for our culture. And by extension, it wouldn't be good for our politics. I think he was pretty right about that. Sure sounds bad when you put it that way. <laughs> well, come on, man. Make the, make the counterpoint. It sure sounds bad when you put it that way. But I also think that in 2003, if Americans had been reading tweets and Facebook posts from Iraq about what was really happening and how Iraqis were suffering, they would have been less likely to invade the country. And again, I guess I still have some of this like utopian internet DNA, or at least statements like that trigger it. But I do think the flip of it is that the internet remains this incredible sort of machine for empathy. There's been this huge expansion of people's ability to empathize with different kinds of people. We're living in the midst of a massive backlash to that expansion, right? But there was, I mean, I don't think marriage equality is a trivial change in society. I don't think it's totally disconnected from the internet. I think there's a lot of things, I and mean, I think we are living in a moment of really profound backlash to a lot of change. I don't think Me Too was sort of a trivial thing, and we're living in a moment of backlash to that. But I mean, the backlash is happening because there was enormous progress and social change that was driven by these things you're deploring. It's wild how quickly things can change it. Like, I, I'm old enough to remember the Arab Spring. You know, what was that 2011, I think? Yeah. And, you know, this was like, oh my God, like Twitter and Facebook, these are going to be tools of global democratic revolution, right? I mean, it was like, that was the peak yeah. for, the, for social media. And then, Jesus, look where we are. Do you think the jury's in, like, on how the last 20 years were, like, good or bad? I think it's early. I don't know. Look, it's one of the struggles of my life at the moment is beating back the cynicism. So, Well, your job is to analyze it all. I'm just reporting facts. Look, I I don't know. I People like to say that the internet, like any tool, isn't good or bad, and, and that's fine. But technologies, especially media technologies, are also never neutral. They have their biases, and, and those biases shape the habits of the people using them, which I think is why our politics has become more like TV and more like 
social media. And I do not think on the whole that has been a good thing. I think it's made our politics almost unbearably, maybe even suicidally stupid and pathological <laughs> in all kinds of ways. And I don't know. Again, I'm, here I am. Um, I'm careening back into the, the 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 pit of pessimism. I'm trying not to do that, but it happens. It is pretty stupid out there, <laughs> right? I don't look, but politics has always been stupid. I do get that. I do get that. It has always been stupid. Yeah, it has. And people like you have always deplored how stupid it was. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think the story of human history is the story of us just inventing tools because we can, because it's cool. Because we think there's, you know, maybe some power, a little bit of profit in it. And then we just sort of pray to God that we adapt to it on the other side. And I think eventually it just doesn't work. And it just fades to black. I remember that, I think it was a Jon Stewart joke way back when, when he was a thing. It was, it was some joke about how, like, the last words ever uttered by a, a human being will be someone in a lab coat saying, it worked. I think there's a truth there. I really do. Well, here's a cheerful thought. It won't be social media. Social media is, is falling apart, and so it will be the next thing that kills us all. We survived. <laughs> well, what's the next thing? The assumption is artificial intelligence, right? In terms of, like, new technology that will kill us all. I don't know. I think biotech is in the running. If the media well, is actually going to be the thing that does it, not some more serious industry, we'll probably use artificial intelligence, I would say. Do you think AI is going to take all of our jobs? As someone who was, for a time, a media critic... I do think that media critics will be the last to go. It's like media critics and HVAC repairmen are going to be the only jobs left in the world. But there is something about like the further up the culture's ass you are, like the harder it will be for AI to find you. But I think copy editors, for instance, is a job that is already, I mean, there's a tool called Grammarly, and nobody goes around saying Grammarly is an artificial intelligence robot that will kill us all. But Grammarly is eliminating the jobs of a lot of copy editors. Paralegals, you know, people who work, who manage, handle documents for insurance companies. It's a lot of jobs. Funny, I was thinking that podcast hosts would be one of the last bastions of, <laughs> of human activity. You know, Bill Simmons was saying the other day that Spotify has asked him to authorize them to use his voice. I saw that. To cut micro-targeted advertising, basically, so that you could say, this is, you know, Sean Elling, like, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but you could say it for every city in the country, urging you to go to Joe's Auto Shop and buy a Prius or whatever. It doesn't seem like a, a large step from that to a Sean Elling podcast bot that can just, you know, have fake conversations that sound uh, probably more insightful than the actual conversations I have. That does not strike me as a likely outcome, just because who wants that? Like, who's the consumer who is like, I want to hear AI talk to itself? Maybe there is one, but I don't know. Maybe when we're really old. Maybe. I, I, think, I think before that happens, AI will be writing, you know, uh, CSI Chattanooga episodes. Oh, yeah. That's probably, because those are, I mean, those literally are paint by number anyway. I think what you're saying is that a lot of what we consider intelligence and creative work is already artificial. You said it, not me. But, yeah. So that stuff, I think, is likely to go. And I actually do think there's some upside to it in specifically my field, which is reporting. Like, it used to be that a lot of reporters were people with high school degrees who were really good at getting information and would say, get me rewrite. And some guy who was good at writing and not good at reporting, but a beautiful writer would write it. And the hollowing out of newsrooms and the collapse of the local business did away with that kind of specialization and favored people who were slick writers and had college degrees. But there's not that much about reporting that you need to have gone to some fancy school for. And I do think that 
one of the real lacks of diversity in journalism and reporting is it's really almost totally limited to people with college degrees. And there is no particular reason. There's nothing you learn in college that's particularly relevant to reporting. And in fact, it really can, I think, narrows the profession. And so if there's somebody who is a great journalist, great reporter, can get a bunch of facts. And actually, by the way, there are very fancy magazine writers of whom this is true, who cannot write at all. I feel like you have some names in mind right now. You should you should say those names. I'm not going to say those names, but I do have names in mind. And these are people who I respect and admire, and many people respect and admire. And who cares if they can write? What is the future of media, you think, digital media in particular? Is it just more fragmentation? Is it newsletters? Is it Substack? Is it Semaphore? I got to plug Semaphore. Semaphore.com, come sign up for sure. But but actually, it's fragmentation. And I think, I would say there are two big trends right now. One is the shift that started happening in Hollywood 75 years ago, from an allegiance to institutions to an allegiance to individuals. I mean, that's a big shift. It's a huge shift. And it's across sports, politics. It's not a news shift. News is just the small backward corner of the world that it's come to last. And podcasts, you know, are part of that, for sure. Newsletters, just a sense that you're going to trust an individual before you trust an institution. And then, yeah, I do think this fragmentation is really interesting. The most interesting statistic, we published it a couple of weeks ago, that I've seen is if you ask people what their favorite podcast is, you know, not everybody has one, but among the subset of people who say they have a favorite podcast, unsurprisingly, Joe Rogan is most popular. But what's so interesting is the Joe Rogan, it's 5% of people saying that he's their favorite podcast. You've got a market in which the biggest player only has 5% and everybody else is small. That's a really unusual... Wow. I never heard it put that way before. That's... Isn't that interesting? Wow. It just means that everyone, everyone is living in the kind of mid-tail. Yeah. And I think maybe that's healthier. That actually feels to me like after having been all on the same website yelling at each other, the notion that people are retreating into calmer, more fragmented spaces, to me feels like you can. I totally understand why everyone wants that. Yeah, I do. Like everything else, there are trade-offs. But institutions are good in lots and lots of ways. That institutions can do things that individuals can't. And I guess it's hard to measure what we lose when we lose institutions of that kind, you know? Yeah, and the challenge for these institutions is how do you function in a way that that you can no longer trick people into thinking these institutions are not composed of individuals. I mean, I think about this in reporting all the time. Like my first gig after college, I worked, I covered cops for the Indianapolis Star. And so like you'd hear on the scanner that somebody got shot. And you, you know, maybe call the police spokesman, maybe go to the scene, and within like an hour, you'd have like a name and an address. But like half the time, they were wrong, and you'd go knock on the wrong door, and you would, the cops would have transposed the number. And this is assuming the cops are telling the truth, but usually they're just like in the early hours after a crime, they're as confused as you are. And you run around all day, sort of like with bad information, getting the name wrong, knocking on the wrong door. But then by the end of the day, you kind of have a sense of what happened, write it up in this neat little article. And the next morning, somebody opens the newspaper and says, wow, these people are really good at their jobs. They really have their acts together. What a well-written, clear piece that says what happened. But now we do all that stuff in public. And we're on Twitter, just like the reader, running around seeing like, oh, somebody tweeted the wrong name and I went to the wrong place. And the reader can see in real time and how this process works, this chaotic, messy process, and can say, oh, wow, these people know no more than I do and they're a bunch of idiots. And I no longer have faith in this institution. But of course, the reality is we were always a bunch of idiots. It was always like that. I think the CDC is a great example of this, right? Like, it's probably worse than it was. But there was a mystique of these institutions when, of course, it was always a bunch of idiots doing their best, at at best, or a bunch of geniuses who screwed up a lot. But how do you 
persuade people to faith in institutions that are, as all institutions are, in fact, composed of a bunch of individuals doing their best. I'd say it doesn't seem outlandish to think that we can kind of come around to that. I really do think the collapse of trust in institutions is maybe the existential crisis of this era because it really does destroy our ability to solve any collective action problem. <laughs> and I do think the internet is at the center of that collapse of trust, in part because of we can now see the folly and the corruption that was always there. And because of the siloing and the fragmentation, I just, I just, I think that in some ways that almost makes it impossible to mobilize in ways that allow us to deal with like civilizational challenges. I agree with that. I guess my only question, and I don't not, I feel, I don't know the answer is, doesn't the pendulum swing? Like, weren't these sclerotic institutions that had massively screwed up all sorts of things kind of ripe for, and they kind of collapse a bit under their own weight? Isn't there a possibility of building ones that are better adapted to a different moment? Totally possible. I Look, there's this, every era thinks like history is ending, you know, next week. I mean, it's just sort of. And then one will be right. That's a good note to end on. Once again, the book is called Traffic. It's a great read. It is sort of the history of this era, and it's worth knowing. Ben Smith, this was a long time coming. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayareaatvox.com. And if you dug this episode, please share it with your friends and your family on all the socials. It really helps. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.